Straight Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am one of the co-hosts of this amazing uh, show that's a not-for-profit. My name is Rick Snyder. I am the author of Decisive Intuition and the CEO of Invisible Edge. And this show is once again dedicated toward human, digital, and social transformation. And uh, one of my most proud um, reflections of the show is we really gather top experts in the world who are on the leading edge of their field, of their craft, who are here to bring us that information and bring us that knowledge. And today is one of those exciting shows with Joseph Martinez, who will be introducing in a second. But before that, I need to introduce my amazing co-pilot, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Welcome, everyone. Uh, yet, a, yet another fantastic show that I'm so excited about. Uh, we have a very special guest on the show today who will introduce himself. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about the context because we, we always do that. I'm, of course, the co-creator of this wonderful show and this not-for-profit. And uh, in other walks of, of life, I'm, uh, you know, I just started my foundation, involved in a lot of not-for-profit work as well as a technology entrepreneur and founder. And a lot of my change in the last 16 months since we started the show, Rick, a lot of my life shifts and paradigm shifts has happened because of this show. Yeah. So this is much more than a podcast or a broadcast. It is, it's changed our lives and it's changed the lives of many people who listen today. So uh, before I throw the ball over to the baseball, over to, to Rick. The pickleball, the pickleball over to Rick. I want to, I want to say something. Uh, the, the guest on the show today is uh, someone I met, I've only met twice about a year back or so just before the pandemic. And on both occasions, the first one was a more formal introduction, and the second one was a more relaxed um, lunch luncheon, should I say. On both occasions, I, I gleaned a lot from my interactions uh, with this individual. Uh, wisdom, calm, um, a sense of uh, completeness in many ways. And when I discovered his background and his life story to some extent, I was more enchanted and more hooked to this sort of a leader. And I believe when we talk about leadership on Straight Talk Live, we talk about um, inspirational leadership. We talk about uh, conscious capitalism, conscious leadership. We talk about how uh, the entire sort of structure of how uh, leaders need to, to build and run teams needs to be reconsidered, reconfigured. And I think this gentleman uh, plays a big role in that future in whatever capacity, whatever avatar or incarnation. So the ball, pickleball over to you, Rick. Uh, please do the intros and um, let's crack on. Okay. Thank you. And, um, you know, this is going to be an exciting topic today around the future of supply chain. And we really all got to see this in the last year plus. When things break down, things break down. And so COVID completely exposed where we thought we have a seamless supply chain in so many ways around you know, everything from medicine, medical supplies, um, agriculture, everything you can think about, 
all of a sudden we realize how dependent we are on different nations, uh, each other, uh, sectors and that don't talk to each other the way we thought they would. And they're not as synchronized and systematized. And um, it really exposed a lot of gaps that we have uh, as we become more global where that's really still fragile. And so today we're going to take a deeper look at what does that look like for the future of how we distribute goods and services um, and how does AI and today's technologies play a role in that to level the playing field across the whole supply chain. Um, and with that, we have an amazing leader, Joseph Martinez, Managing Director and Chief Procurement Officer at BNY Mellon. Joseph, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thank you. Very pleased to be here, Rick and Ash. Thank you for inviting me. Again, I'm here representing myself today, not the bank. Happy to have a, a great conversation with you uh, on the broader topic of supply chain, third-party risk management, and any other area that you may want to, to kind of converse uh, relative to whether it's artificial intelligence or or something as, as broad as art, an area that I know quite a bit about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go right there. Um, I mean, I know even you've had a decorated military background. You've been a leader in so many different ways in all sectors you've been part of. Um, let's just start there. Um, what to you makes great leadership? I think great leadership um, starts with an old adage that my grandfather told me once. We have two years in one mouth. So therefore, you should be listening, not speaking, when you're trying to think through with your group what you're going to drive. And so you need to have integrity. You need, to, you need to think about what is the strategic vision that you're going to put in place and allow people to actually come as their true selves. So it's really important that you look, look for diversity of thought as well as inclusiveness across, across your leadership category. And you need to make sure that you trust your folks, your team members, to be able to bring the technical expertise that they have in order to be able to drive the outcomes that you're doing on behalf of your organization. And understand that everything that you're doing, I happen to work for a bank, everything we do ultimately should be in service of our, of our end customers with an eye towards how do we improve our earnings per share. And that can only happen if you really have a true integrated teamwork, you're driving directionally, and you're not pontificating. You're, 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 you're really working in there and, you know, you should be able to do anything that you're asking your team members to do. So I think leadership starts with being a servant, setting direction, and working alongside your team. Um, thank you for that. That's really profound. Um, and I, I'm going to replay that back for myself in the future. Um, I really appreciate those words. Um, I'm curious, Joseph, um, how did you get into supply chain? How does one get into supply chain? It's such an interesting thing to focus on. How did that become a passion for you? That's a great question. Um, and, and it's interesting because way back when, and I've been doing this for about 30 years, nobody actually started off to go into, into, into supply chain. Today, you can actually get a PhD in supply chain you know, from, 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 from whether it's NC State under Dr. Robert Hanfield or over at, uh, at Arizona State University, as an example, with Dr. Thomas Choi or over in, in Michigan State. So, so formally, it has evolved into, into a discipline and into a profession. When I got into it, it was almost, almost quite by accident. I had I left the military, and um, I was looking to do something. I had, I had relocated back to the United States, and um, I actually attended a diversity event. 
and at that diversity event, I actually met some folks that were with uh, with a community college system, and they happened to take a chance on a veteran, and they said, you know what, why don't you come in? I kind of learned how to actually do this by doing it, and learning from some really, really wise folks. I, I then leveraged that into a career, and then I, I, I ended up going and working for, for about seven years in, in uh, a consulting environment, so I became more formally trained, went and did this uh, for major clients, uh, both financial services and, and entertainment on a, on a global basis. And then, like all good consultants, I ended up going to work for a client. And mm-hmm. so from from there, I've been I've been working in financial services and have had had really the experience of being able to work in Asia. I lived there for for many years in Singapore and in Japan. In addition to that, I worked in in, in South America, obviously in the United States, and that gave me the ability to learn how to do supply chain from a multicultural perspective, learn how to actually create truly global deals and then that enabled me from a leadership perspective to progress up and so so uh, this is uh, um, here here at Bank of New York Mellon I am the chief procurement officer and I have been the chief procurement officer at, at another bank and so it's it's really a good culmination but it's really around you know it wasn't intentional along the way I've made sure that I have lifelong learning so I am mm-hmm. certified through multiple certification uh, uh, processes in both sourcing as well as in third-party risk management. So I am one of those folks that is continually always investing in my teams and in myself in that lifelong learning journey. So that's kind of how I came to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joseph, before we go into the the depths of uh, procurements and, and all of the other important things that come with it, another question on leadership, which is more timely, which relates to this environment, which is more virtual now. So. Um, if you're fortunate as a leader, you've already integrated, in your words, or you created an integrated team that is has a common purpose and drive, and you've got this authentic environment environment where people feel comfortable. That's that's a fortunate situation. What what if what would you say to people who or leaders who are new, who don't have that luxury and are, are now dealing with a virtual stroke remote team environment? Uh, because you know the whole the whole part of the whole part of leadership that is just absolutely amazing is the face to face connectivity with your people, where you're energizing one another. You know the energy flows. I mean, I guess energy can flow through the video screen too. Your body language has a lot to do with it. The way you use your words and and so on and so forth. How have you how have you managed that with your team? First part of the question, and how is it different to what you've just described? And second part of the question is, what would you advise? someone who hasn't got that foundation, um, how would they cope with this situation in your opinion? So this is you know, a personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'll start by saying when the pandemic struck, one of the very first things I did that very first week was I started what I called it, at that time it was a daily huddle. And that's where we would bring up for 15 minutes, no more on a global basis, Everybody, it doesn't matter whether you're the, 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 the freshman that just got hired out of university or whether you're one of my direct reports. And we gave a forum so that everybody could have that conversation around the pandemic. So we used that to help build a sense of community, mm-hmm. to kind of do a check-in across the globe as to what was going on. 
Now, as, as time has progressed, we've obviously shifted that because it became more of a, of a new normal, and we do it on a weekly basis instead of a daily basis. But at first, we, it was uncharted territory, and we needed to be able to do this. In addition to that, as we shifted from, from in-office to virtual, we needed to make sure that we were ensuring that not just our team, but our, our, our um, broader organization had the tools that they needed in order to be able to do this. In some parts of the world where we have large operations, uh, having internet, internet at home was not really something that was planned for. People came to work after they had it, right? So we had to provision these folks, and we had to think about how do we actually pivot from what we thought was a, was a normal. How did we work to make sure that we had the appropriate security in place? How did we make sure that we had the appropriate equipment that was delivered? How did we, how did we work with our supply base to turn them into a distribution model from a logistical perspective to, to ensure that, our, that, that we were able to get the right level of connectivity, the right type of equipment, with obviously the right guidelines in, in, into the group. So that was kind of like that first foundational base. But one of the things that we've been able to do is we actually had a couple of leaders in our organization that have started during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Never met their teams in person, right. but yet have highly functioning groups. Some of these are in India as an example. Some of these are in Poland as an example, where they've never met their teams, mm -hmm. but yet they're, they're, they, they came on. We made sure that we had the right level of training. We made sure that we were giving them the right level of support. But having these interactions, and I think it's important to have skip levels mm -hmm. so that individuals have the ability to actually know that their voice is heard. It's yeah. also important to be able to highlight it. One of the things that we did was we created a, uh, what we call the CPO uh, award, and we did it for individuals and teams because it's really important to bring up teamwork. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that we did was we, went, we, we had a really great session recently with your former employer, with Gartner. Okay. In terms of burnout and in terms of what you should be thinking about doing in order to ensure that your employees are not reaching that stage of burnout so that consciously you're going in and they, they gave us a series of, of, of um, recommendations. Uh, it, one of them is as simple as making sure that you're going and thanking people for the work that they're doing, recognizing and rewarding that. So, so, so I thought that that was really important. But conversely, we also needed to look at our extended supply chain because we have third and fourth parties that are delivering goods and services on behalf of the bank. And so we needed to make sure that what we were doing was we were putting in place the ability for them to be successful on our behalf, but making sure that we were meeting the regulatory requirements for privacy, for, for, for the various aspects, so that operationally we would be able to, to think about it. Because you just can't have a bunch of non-standard practices that happen. You need to have process, you need to have controls, and you need to be able to make sure that what you're doing is looking for the truth in terms of how you're doing it. And, and you can do that with data. And so mm -hmm. that, 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 you know, uh, I, I can tell you honestly, in, in my data and analytics group, uh, we've actually created, since the pandemic, very specific um, uh, data visualization tools, dashboards, to enable people to have the transparency across their portfolios in a different lens than what we would have had had we normally been inside 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 four walls, so, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but I'm trying to kind of give you a flavor for what you need to do. And it comes down to culture, 
comes down to role, responsibility, and ensuring that what you're putting in place is a framework that is ultimately going to give you the outcomes that you want. And it should be done from a data-driven perspective. Uh, you know, um, you know, it was once said, that which is valued is measured, that which is measured gets done. And whenever you're dealing with a supply chain, everything that you do can be measured. And therefore, you can tell how effective or efficient your program is. Mm. Do you see? Do you see? Um, do you see this model, uh, this this massive shift of the last sixteen months, which is, of course, you called it uncharted territory, and it, it has been that actually. And some have done really well out of it. And you're describing some great practices that you've uh, implemented that's worked well for for your team. Uh, do you think this has made us stronger? Do you think this has made us more resilient? Um, do you think this has made us more human? Um, one of the, the, the ways I introduced you earlier on was I didn't say human, but I felt that you had that um, level of authenticity and calm. And uh, do you think that's brought that, uh, that's awakened that, brought that out in a lot of people, given that we've been through a tough time, you've had to adjust almost shapeshift in a Darwinian fashion really quickly. Uh, six years worth of changes happen. Sometimes people say even more in a 16 month period. Do you think we're better off now uh, from the point of view of future leadership? Or, or, or is there a different scenario that we should be considering here? I do think that um, the change driven by the pandemic has really kind of really gotten organizations to rethink what the future state is going to look and what, what the future of work is going to look like, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I, I also think that, you know, in order to have lasting change, something typically has an inflection point. And I think if it's six months or less, you go back to the way it was. Over six months, you now have a shift in the paradigm and the new normal is kind of the way it's going to work. So I think one of the big things that has changed is the mindset from a management perspective relative to hybrid working. Right. There are many, many large organizations that initially said you have to be in the office five days a week, you know, eight to whatever. And, and that ha I think that mind shift has, has changed. And I think it's changing because they're seeing that the productivity has actually increased. Mm. Okay. And, and part of that is because if you're in the East Coast, what happens is you have a lengthy commute if you're living in Connecticut or in Jersey, et cetera, trying to get into, the, into New York City as an example. So when the pandemic hit, you saw that people would always start meetings at about 8.15 or, or, or later. Now they're starting them at 7 o'clock sometimes, okay, because they're taking advantage of the fact that there was no longer the need for that commute. Now, again, there's pros and cons to that, but I also think that you're starting to see the humanity of individuals relative to that work-life balance mm -hmm. because in some instances you'll see children walking in the back who, or, or you'll have, you know, Pets. I, I, I was in a conference recently where a cat came in and the, the speaker just was like freaking out because a cat came into their house. But you know what? That's normal now. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. So it gets you to start to, to start to think differently as a group and it allows you to actually be, I think, a bit more creative mm -hmm. because now you're able to bring more ideas to the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Zoom, as an example, is a great equalizer. Everybody has a voice, and it's really how do you actually want to express that voice. And so 
I do think that, 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 that there are changes there, but there's also changes in the way we have the relationships that we have with our customers mm-hmm. and that we have with our suppliers. Those, those I know have significantly changed because of the way we had to do this. Think about this. If, if, uh, I used to work for one of the big four years ago. We always felt that the only way we could deliver a consulting engagement was to physically be on site with right. the client. Right. Right. So they could see you, you could interact, you could whiteboard, et cetera. But, but if you go and you talk to many of these folks, because a, a lot of these partners are people that I've worked with for 30 years, right? They have found that, that, that it, you can actually deliver the value, the intellectual capital, virtually without having to be in the room with your client. And therefore, you're, you're giving a better product at, at, at a reduced cost, and part of that cost is eliminating the travel. You're not, you're not, doing, a, you're not doing a Monday, Thursday flight right. to get from point A to point B. And so that's starting to get people to rethink what the art of the possible is relative to what that experience is going to be with your suppliers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, that level of trust goes up. And I think, you know, the amount of data that's been created during this pandemic that is going to be mined for years, I think is just really, really important. And it gives us an opportunity to really see what kind of insights that we can drive from this. You know, what can, what, what can we actually do to actually change the way our cost base are in terms of the way our the way our suppliers are delivering value to us, and how does that ultimately help us to be more efficient, effective, and how do we actually change the mindset of our employees? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a tangible example. In my group, I had people go through 12-week certification programs virtually. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so they they were able to upskill themselves with something that they can take with them no matter where they go, and that showed that we had an investment in them as people. So. So, so, so I think I think it's it, it, it's really important that we that we don't lose the opportunity that the pandemic has given us to rethink how work will be, to think how our customer interactions are going to be, and to think what the strategies are that we need to do to drive innovation. Because there's a lot of innovation that has occurred, not just within supply chain but across businesses during this pandemic. You know, so. I'll, I'll stop there and, and let's, you know, I don't want it to be a diatribe. I'd rather it be a conversation. Yeah, jo- Joseph, I love these points. I want to get to the heart of supply chain. So let's go here right Absolutely. now. And I'd love to discuss the mindset and the technologies. So mm-hmm. let's start with mindset first. Um, when I think of procurement, um, traditionally, I, th- I, I would think when you're hired, you're hired to make the most profit you can for your business and to look at cutting costs and you know, to have advantage for yourself. But in our conversations prior, you've talked about actually your paradigm is more how do we find a, a win-win scenario for all stakeholders. And that doesn't seem the usual conversation I hear from procurement leaders out there in the space. So I'd love to hear more about this paradigm. You mentioned paradigm shift. How do you see this paradigm shift? Uh, tell, talk more about the mindset of that and why would that even be a benefit for people in procurement? Well, I think the the mindset is is that you know we need to build a culture of leaders with our frontline employees and our suppliers that that, that are really going to allow us to be able to change what we're doing. And it used to be, if you think about the levels of maturity, right? The lowest level of maturity is really just going out there and trying to squeeze cost. We're not haggling. That 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 was 1950s. That was the green eye shade. Period. Okay. What we're doing now is we're actually business leaders that are helping to look at how we're going to drive it. And believe it or not, if if you're in a highly regulated industry like like I am, 
risk actually has kind of over the last maybe five, ten years has really become the leading um, concern with the regulators, the third-party risk management. How how are you managing the risks associated with your supply chain, and you know how are you making sure that your suppliers aren't going to fail? And so you have to tier your suppliers. You have you have you have you have to go in there and you have to figure out what how do you get a better performance out of them, so that you're not just looking at them in terms of transactions. You're looking at them more holistically across across the spectrum. Okay, and what you need to do is you need to be able to make sure that you're helping to to transcend the you know, the old uh, idiom of essentially I pay you, you do for me. Let's move on. That's that's not what this is about. It's really how are you going to define value? How is that value going to be mutual? Mm-hmm. And you know, I actually want my suppliers to make as much profit as they possibly can if they're delivering to me the value that I need that is ultimately going to enable me to actually improve my, 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 my stock price. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I have to think about, you know, what are the expected benefits that I can get from that kind of a relationship? And that comes down to actually understanding how do we actually integrate our processes? How do we, how do we, how do we integrate the value exchange that is going between us and how do we shift the mindset? I mean, if you think back 10 years ago, if you were doing an application development uh, initiative, you were thinking about it in terms of a waterfall and milestone deliverables. Now we think about it in terms of agile, right? Mm-hmm. And so that makes us, from a procurement perspective, also have to really rethink how we're doing our contracting. Mm-hmm. Because now you're talking about story, story points, you're talking about backlogs, you're talking about mm-hmm. the, the whole mindset has shifted. And so th- that, that, that makes, makes you have to have a better relationship, which means that you need to actually understand the risk associated with whoever you're going you're you're to go through these partnerships on, okay? Think about it. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, there really wasn't cloud. Cloud was more of, a, of an idea. Today, massive amounts of transactions are happening on public and private clouds. That changes, again, the risk profile of what activities that you're doing, which means that it has to shift how you are approaching those relationships from a procurement perspective, okay? Mm-hmm. And so if you really think about it, 10 years ago, we did stuff on Excel, right? And we, and we, and we, and we did what I would call very high-level business cases. Today, we're using artificial intelligence to help us make better decisions so that we can actually take huge amounts of disparate information across, across our supply chain and across our suppliers and use that to make sure that we're looking at our financial viability, make sure that we're looking at our risk, making sure that whatever program or process we're putting in place is actually going to drive the outcome that is going to give us the result that we're looking for without a win-lose. Because it's not going to do me any good not to be one of the, you know, not to have a relationship with a third party that, that is, you know, these guys have, we've squeezed them so hard they can't be profitable that mm-hmm. will translate into in, into reduced service levels. That will translate into missed opportunity. And ultimately, you're not going to be a customer of choice for them. And you want to be the customer of choice because that's where, you, where they'll come to you with innovation. That's where they'll come to you with partnership. And that, that that's which will, will will allow us to be you know you know much more effective in in terms of the outcome that we're driving, right? Because from a procurement perspective, I have to think about price times quantity. Okay. The price is, and the squeezing of price, that, that's, 
15 years ago. The, the quantity or the demand management, that requires you to have the, 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 the disparate um, information sets so you can do the forecasting. Okay, you right. can't forecast unless you have large amounts of data, and so you need to be, you know, you need to have the processes in place that are going to be able to to, to give you data-driven results, which are essentially going to allow you to drive at, from an outcome perspective. How do you forecast? How do you improve accuracy in terms of what you're doing across your supply chain? How do you actually, you know, secure stakeholder buy-in for 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 everything that you're doing, so that they understand that you have their best interests at heart, right? And so, so we're one of the fields that generates a lot of data. And so it's really important for us to think about how do we actually use, you know, statistical modeling techniques within a supply chain in order to be able to, to manage our cost base, our risk base, and ultimately the, the end client experience. Mm. You talked about, uh, I want to touch on one point because you just, you, you mentioned AI while you were describing what you were a second ago, and then you talked about data and analytics. Uh, talk us through specifics, if you, if you would, on uh, either a, a, a live example or something you can share with us, which brings it to life uh, for some of our listeners. How, do, how, does, so how does someone in supply chain or in procurement use artificial intelligence to do what you've described? You just give us a couple of examples. Okay, I'll give you one. I'll start with an example in terms of contract lifecycle management. Okay. So that is, that is an evolving field where they're using both machine learning and, and, and um, artificial intelligence. And so historically, managing a supplier post-contract was somewhat difficult mm -hmm. because, because people didn't have the ability. They, they, they did, they did um, quantitative rather than qualitative scorecarding. Okay, yeah. and so... So, so with, with the uh, rise of some of these contract lifecycle management tools, where you can decompose into the metadata and you can actually extract all of the obligations and you can track them, that will give you the ability to then be able to go in and actually hold each other accountable, so that you can actually understand what you're doing. I, I've done this. I've done this at several companies, and in doing so, have have recouped tens of millions of hard dollars where you go in and you find out that, guess what, you know what, we didn't take advantage of the discount at a certain amount of time, or if we took a look at what was actually happening, if it was a time of materials event, as an example, there could be a possibility that your supplier has the same individual on three engagements at the same time. Mm -hmm. Don't laugh, that's happened. Okay, and so, and so, so using using the data that's available to you and, and the ability to go through with the, with the, with the uh, um, a 360 type view that that gives you that that insight. So so contract management is evolving, and and the use of AI and ML in both the authoring as well as the obligations management that 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 is frontline. That is something that is happening today, and that is something that is evolving, which I think is ultimately going to strengthen the supply chain. And right. We can hold each other accountable. So that that's just one one example. I think another example that that, I, that I can, comes to mind is in, in um, spend management, right? Because it, we, if you take a look across most or, most global organizations who are going across, you know, fifty, a hundred different um, companies, what you what you find with them is that they can't actually have the transparency of what they're actually buying holistically. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of multiple disparate data points, but if once you can actually get that in there. 
you can then normalize it with a taxonomy. Once you have a normalized taxonomy, you can then start to do category management. That category management can then allow you to then put the right level so that you can push into what I call buying channels, mm-hmm. the, the appropriate the appropriate action for what you're going to do. If it's something that is repeatable, it, it's generic, you guess what? You put that in a catalog. Okay, and now you have the ability to go out and build pricing around that catalog. Mm-hmm. If it's something that's, that, that's professional services related, you know, I think I was one of the first guys in the industry that actually used what's called a reverse auction to actually normalize and figure out what, 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 what the rate should be, whether it's for a managed service or whether it's for a ton of materials. So again, it, it's really about how do you actually think about the data points that you can gather, how can you utilize those data points through models to be able to run simulations to figure out what the right, what the right um, outcome is going to be relative to price, relative to risk, relative to contracting, and relative to ongoing monitoring of those third-party relationships. Mm, fantastic. How, how does this affect, sorry, one point, thinking a devil advocacy here, devil's advocacy here. How does this, um, what you're describing, imagine you're the clients in this case, and you've done all of these wonderful things with technology, and it's making you better, faster, more efficient, uh, agile, and so on. How do the vendors respond to this? How do the people who are trying to sell into the big institutions, organizations deal with this? Uh, let me make it a little bit more difficult. Let me talk about not a massive, huge, large organization like a big vendor. I won't name any, but let's talk about a more, um, a more, uh, a younger startup-ish, uh, scale-up-ish type company that is trading or trying to transact with a big company. How do they, how do they fit into this puzzle? Given innovation is the central theme for for the next next gen of supply chain as well. Well, when you think about it. In- Younger, smaller companies are obviously more agile and have the ability to, I think, actually disrupt longer um, or, or longer-term industries, right? And so I think ensuring that you are plugged into the innovation labs that a, that a company might have, mm-hmm. I think is really crucial. And then taking a look at how do you actually contract with them? You have to look at them a little bit differently, almost like, like you have to incubate them in order to be able to give them the opportunity to be able to come in. Because they, they may not have the uh, requisite requirements that you may have from an insurance perspective. Or if it's a startup, they may not have five years of financials because they weren't around except for 18 months ago. But the technology that they're bringing in, I think, is important for you to really think through You know, what, what is really your organization's needs, what is the, the minimal viable information that you need and if you put them through some sort of an incubator program, that will also help us because we're looking for things that are going to help us to disrupt our competitors, right? And so you're not going to do that internally. That's typically going to be with a startup somewhere. And so by by investing in them, by you know literally taking taking uh, warrant stocks in them, or or actually you know doing going into their Series A, those are all things I think that help us to kind of drive that. But it's, it, it, you need to be intellectually curious uh, and, and, and kind of rigor test them. So, so when you think about this, one of the highest costs in financial services is call centers. Right. And getting the information from a call center is very, very latent with human beings. Okay. I call them carbon-based life forms, right? And 
carbon-based life forms are interesting, okay, because I think people like to interact with people. However, they cannot as quickly disseminate information that's needed. And so there, there are emerging companies out there that, that, that I've seen, okay, that have the ability to, do, to essentially integrate using artificial intelligence, voice, you know, text, you know, m- multi-disparate ways of communicating, which reduce the cycle time, give a better answer more effectively. But if we were to go and try and contract with some of these companies, they've been around for two years maybe, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have the ability to, if, if our programs are so rigid that they, they, we say, well, unless you have three years of audited financials, we can't even talk to you. Unless you sign up to our requirements from our master agreements, you know, I don't ever want somebody to just, just to sign the master agreement because that tells me that they don't understand the risk that they're taking on. So, so it's about how do you actually, how do you actually write, use the right tool for the job? Think about it like a, you know, this is very analog. Think about the old tool belts and you had the saw, you had the measure or whatever, right? You know, again, I'm going to quote my grandfather. He used to say, to the man who only has a hammer, every problem is a nail. Okay, and so, so I'm, I'm, I'm articulating to you, we have to have different tools as we look at different types of the, of the supply chain, and we have to understand how does this ultimately tie into our long-term strategy for growth. Okay, and, you know, as you, as you may have recently seen, you know, many financial, you know, several financial services companies are, are starting to invest in cryptocurrencies. That was something that two years ago they would have never done. Right, you know, so so so, it, it, it's about taking a risk. It's about having leadership that understands, you know, what what are you going to do, and understand that there's going to be an investment, and there's going to be risk with that investment as you're trying to bring some of these um, younger organizations into the fold. But some of these will ultimately help you, again, do what we want is to ensure that we are efficient, effective, and and, and driving to earnings per share. You know, one point I want to dive into with this, um, part of my field of study is studying intuitive intelligence and some of the science behind how that works uh, with our different neural pathways internally as human beings, but also how that interacts with AI is pretty fascinating because AI is mimicking and we're, you know, it's a mirror of us, right? It's almost our child, you could say, um, in some ways. Um, And so my question to you, something that we talked about before, Joseph, is around negotiation. And you're seeing how AI is getting better and better at negotiating uh, itself with with uh, some of the technologies around reading body mechanics and uh, mm-hmm. facial expression and micro expressions, mm-hmm. uh, tone, all these things. Can you talk a little bit more about what are you seeing in terms of the power of AI in terms of its ability to negotiate? How close is it to human and salespeople and what we have today? Uh, how far away is it? What are you seeing on the cutting edge? You know, I I've I've seen some things with some of the large. Sub- some of the large technology companies that are investing heavily in this, right? And I still think that we're in a nascent period. And I, I do, you know, again, I do, I, I, I did, haven't experienced it, but I did read about what uh, what happened when um, one of the big, and I won't name them, one of the big tech companies actually created a negotiating bot. Mm-hmm. And after they actually turned it off because after a, a number of iterations, what happened was the bot started to lie. Mm-hmm. started and started to gain you know you can google it i won't i won't name who it is but it's it's somebody out of california 
<laughs> you'll be able to figure this out. Uh, but but I, I still think that at the end of the day, it's really about how do you actually get the the diagnostic information that you need mm-hmm. in order to be able to drive that. I still think that we're a ways from using um, machine-to-machine negotiation. I still think that we're probably at least 10 years away from that. Will we get there? I think we will. I think where, where we can use the tools more effectively is in terms of the the way we actually go to market. Okay, and so whether that be something like 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 a reverse auction or a Japanese auction or you know or or some some other area where where, where you're either trying to understand what the market is so you can drive price down, or if you're trying to come to an outcome solution, how you can actually sh- shorten that cycle time between offer and acceptance. And there's a lot of nuance that goes into that. So I think there's a lot of investment that's going into this. Uh, I think that for direct materials, that will be, I think that's really where the groundbreaking negotiation will happen because it's, it's a more defined area. In the indirect space where you're really doing more like services, I, I'm not so sure that that is going to be uh, something that is going to be uh, as impactful in a short period of time. Okay, because I still think that it's more of that human interaction. You, you you need to get that spend view. You need to be able to look at the data. You need to be able to get get the the points. But I think that I think that that on the indirect side of the procurement organi- uh, procurement uh, spectrum, I don't see that as being the leader relative to getting uh, uh, these types of negotiations. I do think that we'll see that much sooner on the direct side, just based on the uh, on, on the finite variables that can go into a negotiation if you're going to build silicon chips as an example versus developing a piece of software mm-hmm. i think there are polar ends of the, of the spectrum there of the continuum that, that that you can do that so i i do think it'll help us um as we are doing our strategic planning i think it's going to help us to move away from tactical to a more to a more effective uh and i think it will be a disruption within the negotiation process. But I think for right now, it's really how do you get the sourcing insights? How do you, how do you, you know, get the cost optimization strategies? How do you prepare for the negotiation? Not necessarily how do you do the negotiation yeah. at, at that right. point. Right. Talking about negotiation, and, and I want to touch on a point around talent. Uh, so with so much change going on and, and people needing to learn new things, skills changing, um, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of development that's required at every level, leadership down. So uh, talk us through what you're seeing in your organization or outside around how the needs and the dynamics related to talent is changing. Uh, and I'll, again, I'm, playing, I'm doing the devil advocate, devil's advocate piece. The general perception, uh, you know, and it might be different now, is that someone from procurement is trained to do X, Y, and Z things around vendor management, vendor negotiation, vendor consolidation, everything to do with the suppliers. And a few things have happened over the last couple of years where um, the, the role of every executive has become way more prominent because the CEO said, listen, how do I deal? So much change is going on on chartered waters. Uh, how do I deal with this CPO? I've never seen this before. Supply chains are being disrupted. Geopolitical uh, situations are, are making it absolutely, um, you know, uh, troublesome or painful to really predict what's going to happen with a lot of our suppliers and so on and so forth. So all of this change is happening. It's confusing. There's a lot of uncertainty. 
Tell us a little bit more about, you can give an example of your, your team as well, but what does the talent dynamic situation look like? Do we have, do we, do we see procurement people changing? Uh, are their skill sets and their traits going to change? When I was back in my, in my corporate role, even for my company, we talk about hiring, hiring on traits, training for skills. Hiring on traits, training for skills. Skills can be, anyone can learn skills. But traits are very, very hard to find. You know, that hunger, that desire, the curiosity, so on and so forth. Talk us through that and what's your philosophy around that? Well, I think uh, I'll start with answering, do I see the profession changing? And the answer that is absolutely, because I think there are some foundational gaps that are currently existing. Yeah. But if you go in, and I have conversations with, with uh, multiple universities, in terms of, they come to me and they've asked, what do you want us to train in, right? And I think, you know, if you had asked me that 15 years ago, we would have probably said negotiation. That's not what we're saying today. Today we're saying they need to be, they need to have a data science foundation. And you're like, well, why does somebody in supply chain need to have a data science foundation? I'm telling you, that is now part of the core curriculum in many of the universities because they understand and appreciate the fact that if they don't understand how to actually work with the data and actually basically be data scientists first, it's going to be very difficult for them to be able to to make that leap into what's going on in the future, right? And so, so when I think about these things, I think leaders are really taking a look about at the uh, foundational gap analysis that that we have in the industry. Okay, and one of the things that we know is that we need to be teaching people data science. Mm-hmm. That that is becoming so crucial to what we do. And if you take a look at a lot of the, if you take a look at a lot of the um, larger global procurement organizations, they will have actual data scientists that are in there because mm-hmm. they, you know that is so foundational to what we're trying to do. And we're trying to change the mindset from people that are really, you know, our profession has really been dominated with a, a value preservation mindset, right? So, so, so we're out there thinking about how are we going to, how are we going to avert, um, you know, adverse effects of the pandemic, or how are we going, you know, so, it's, and we we've got to change that so we have more of a of a forward looking view, so that we're able to kind of, you know, in, embrace our role as value creators and partner with the enterprise, partner with the C-suite in order for us to be able to drive, you know, the outcome that we need to do, which is essentially how do we make more profit, less risk at a better cost for for our organizations. And, and to do that, you have to change what is being taught in university. You have to be able to have an impact in terms of what you're training internally, because I, I believe that you have to have a lifelong learning process within your organizations and with you in yourself as individuals, right? So, so you know, if you need to get people stretch assignments. You need to be able to get people to, to rotate. And I honestly believe that you should be, within the large organizations, you know, you should be rotating people every two to three years into different activities because that's what's going to round them out and what is ultimately going to help us to increase the value of, of, of what we're doing. You know, I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I worked for Bank of America. And at Bank of America, every two to three years, we were seeding people into different parts of the business. And if you go back, we we made sure that people got trained in Six Sigma back then. And 
we made sure that we were rotating them into operations, into finance, into different areas. And if you go back there today, a lot of these folks have risen up into different areas. I was recently talking to one who's an executive vice president of um, uh, human resources, but 15 years ago, this guy was in sourcing. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a matter of how do you actually ensure that you're putting in place a, a mindset that your birth certificate did not say you were a purchasing person. Mm-hmm. It said that you were a human being, and and you've got to foster creativity. I mean, I'm, I'm going to show you. I'm an artist. I don't know if you can see this or not. Oh yeah, that's cool. You know, cool. So so one of the things that I do is is I try and utilize my art to be able to help me center myself and to think more creatively. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in this case, it's it, it, it's a frog coming out, evolving out of an orange, right? A <laughs> little surrealistic, but what what it does is it allows you to be rethinking because you've got to get people to bring their whole self, their authentic mm-hmm. self to what they're doing mm-hmm. so that you can do this because all of the investment in AI is not going to do you any good if you have people that don't know how to think. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. we, what, now we know why we're talking to you because you're really an artist. You've tapped into our creative... I'm a musician, and uh, you know there is a spe- I think there is an X factor in the in, in the brain when you have these other skill sets. You can read situations very very differently. But that's amazing, Ricky. We're going to ask something. I know we're running short on time. We have a we have a question. Yeah, let's bring in some questions from audience. And also a reminder out there: if you're watching live, please type in your questions now for Joseph so we can get them to him. So Joseph, here's a question from Facebook. Um, how exactly does AI help us avoid the problems we experienced with our supply chains during the pandemic? So if you can get one, a little more specific, how does AI actually help us avoid the problems uh, that are coming forward? Well, I think what it does is it allows you to link your data to your sourcing insights. And then you can develop what I call category strategies that enable you to then kind of think through how you're actually going to do this. So, so I'll, I'll, um, I'm trying to kind of think of a, of a succinct example of where, where, where this helps us. It, it has helped us um, in, in, in essentially looking at how we actually interact on and how we actually move transactions on a global basis. Okay, and, and where where we can optimize how we're actually driving that. Okay, so so it, it basically helps us to kind of differentiate how we're actually approaching our problems and how we're actually ensuring that we're providing the, the, the right uh, information at the right time, which ultimately results into the right good, into the into the right place. Okay, again, we do nothing but indirect. We don't build anything as a bank. Right. Okay. Right. Right. But what, but what, but what we do is we distribute this. Okay? Ooh, I want some of those. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, 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 it's, so it's important that we think about, you know, what, what what are we doing so that we're, you know, incorporating into our process ways mm. to become more efficient and effective. You know, if you had asked anybody um, pre-pandemic whether or not they actually wanted to really think about using, um, you know, tokenization of payments so that you're able to actually do the, di- the distribution to in fractional components to, to a larger audience. People would have thought that that was insane. But I'll tell you what, people are now thinking about that because while we may want these, you don't want the physical ones. Mm-hmm. During a pandemic, you don't want to be touching this 
Mm. Okay, I, I've held on to this for already like a year and a half, right? <laughs> because nobody wants to take this because of the germs or, 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 uh, or, or the potential right. opportunity. Mm. So that's why digital currency is now becoming so important. Okay, and so our ability to help to put in place agreements with these types of providers in order to be able to en- enable the digitization of the supply chain and the payment cycle, that, that that's really important. You know, this is important, but but if I can do this as a fraction of, of a digital currency as I'm doing a settlement with a supplier and that supplier is in turn doing a settlement with their suppliers, that makes a much more efficient and robust um, uh, ecosystem where you're not having to physically transport this anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a lot more secure. And, and, and it also, as you can tell, derives some greater value. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if I give you a good example, but, but it's one that I know that, 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 that is real and is happening. You know, it brings up a question that's been on a lot of our minds recently with the huge wave around crypto and the excitement around crypto. And as you said earlier on the show, you know, a lot of the institutions that would maybe look down on it are now investing in it, whether JP Morgan's, Chase's, Goldman Sachs, et cetera. Um, what do you think is the future of crypto? What are you seeing in the space? I think, well, for, first off, I, I think, that we, and again, I'm speaking as a person, not as a representative of, right. of any institution. Um, I think it's going to, I think with, the, with acceptance is going to come regulation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, I, I have to think immediately back to some of the ransomware attacks that have recently happened. Okay, and those ransomware attacks, they were essentially using cryptocurrency as, as a form of paying the ransom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and something that five years ago they said was impossible, which is to basically break into a digital wallet, mm-hmm. we've proven that that, is not, that that is now possible. And we've seen that with the retrieval of a couple of million dollars of the ransom that was paid for the oil pipeline, right? It's public news. So... So I, I think that it's going to become, you know, very, very uh, pertinent. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, several years ago, I used to work for a Japanese bank. This Japanese bank created a cryptocurrency that could actually be used on your, on your, on your digital wallet. And at that time, they were looking to have it rolled out for the what was supposed to be the Olympics in 2020, which I think are going to happen this summer, because it was going to be a way to help people with an exchange process without having to actually carry any of this stuff as, as they go through from an Olympic perspective, right? I, I don't know if they, I don't know whether, if they're going to be able to do this, but part of this was with what they were doing with Coinbase, right? Mm-hmm. And so I do believe that it is becoming, it is becoming um, a normalized uh, process, but I do think that the regulatory component is going to be there, and with that, the taxation component. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see changes on that, but I think it's going to become very, very common. I envision that my my, my younger son, he'll buy a house using crypto at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's just going to become another medium. Uh, the way when I was a child, and I get I'm an old man, um, credit cards were just coming out, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, and, but today nobody even thinks about that. Nobody right. debit cards. It, then, then evolve. This is just another evolution in a financial transaction capability. You know, pay for money evolved because people didn't want to carry around bricks of gold, right? So, right. 
so so this is just an evolution, I think, and I think with the security and and the uh, um, ability to to make the payments through a secure manner, I, I honestly think that that's that this is here to stay. I think it's I think we will see um, leaps in terms of the creation of 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 the types of use of, from a cryptocurrency perspective, and. You know, uh, I'm 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 all in on that. I I, I believe it's a, the right way to go. Wonderful. Mm. 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 I mean, there is uh, the, the possibilities are definitely infinite. I, I I guess at some point we're going to see large enterprises use some form of a coin uh, to pay their vendors, and uh, you know that's. Tell you, I, I can tell you some already are. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Well, that's we're, we're hopeful because we, we, we believe in change and I think things need to evolve and be displaced sometimes for that change to come through. So uh, are, are there any more questions, uh, Rick, that have come through? Uh, looks like that's all uh, I see right now, unless Denise has any back there. Okay. Um, so I have, I have one final one. Uh, it's not a big question. It's more a personal one. Um, for those, uh, for, for, you know, we have, a, we have a group called the Maverick Leaders Group, um, uh, Joseph, that is a combination of a lot of our past speakers and existing outliers, non-conformists, mavericks, out, you know, whatever you want to call them, and aspiring mavericks, outliers, non-conformists. What would you say about the next 10 years to those folks out there? Um, what, what, is, what words of wisdom would you say before you close off this call um, to make us feel um, to make us feel more hopeful and inspired and excited about what's to come tomorrow. I think to be intellectually curious at all times. I think to be uh, diverse in terms of your um, interests. Because I think that all of those are going to help us to kind of drive things forward. And, and, and I also think that it's really important for us to think about this from a global perspective, because too often we're coming looking at it from whatever country we're coming from. And if, if we're going to be successful, we need to think about this much more holistically. And, and we need to embrace uh, the insight that we can gather. I mean, think about prior to uh, virtual assistants. You know, mm. now people don't even think twice about talking to their phone, you know, to, 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 to gather information, you know, or, or to listen to music or to monitor their health. So, so I think embracing this, don't be afraid of it, uh, you know, promote value-added services that are going to be, you know, evolving through this process. And, and I think that people need to think about becoming entrepreneurs. I think that Historically, it's 35 and younger, which is really where the entrepreneurial spirit is. I think that we now have live in an age just based on the sophistication of algorithms that are out there that individuals should have the mindset at any age to be able to go out there and create value for themselves and for, and for society in general and to do it in an ethical manner do it, you know, just out of intellectual curiosity, not because you want to make money. That happens to be a byproduct of it, right? Because you yeah. want to deliver, because you want to deliver alternative value uh, across across, you know, various ecosystems. That's nicely summed up. That's beautiful. Uh, ethics, uh, intellectual curiosity. We will absolutely have that as a hashtag. And uh, heck, that's why we set this up. 
because of the intellectual curiosity that we had to ensure that we're not ill-prepared again for the next pandemic. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Joseph. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories and your experiences. And uh, we're certainly more hopeful about the future that, uh, that's to come. And it's great to see that procurement and all of the bias and perception that some people may have who are not in that field will see it totally transform based on what you're telling us. Uh, roles change and procurement people will be data scientists too. So more jobs for data scientists, uh, so which, which is great. Uh, Rick, I'll hand it over to you to, to close the proceedings and talk about next week as well. Yeah, just want to say thank you again, Joseph, for everything that you brought today. Uh, very inspired and looking forward to more engagement with you in our community as well. And where can people find out more about you and your good work? Where should they go? I guess LinkedIn would probably be the, the way I, I do not sound, I'll sound like a heretic. I don't do Facebook. So. <laughs> so LinkedIn is the best place to look for what you're up to LinkedIn. nowadays and what have you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. So go to LinkedIn, look for Joseph Martinez there. And thank you again for being on Straight Talk Live. And thank next you. week, uh, you're welcome. And, and next week, we're going to be actually talking about data privacy a little more deeply, which is something we touched on today. We're going to have back Anurag Lal, the CEO of NetSphere, uh, and used to be in the Obama administration at one point, and an incredible wealth of knowledge in terms of data privacy, what's going on in the space, uh, and Section 230, which was enacted back in 96 around giving protections from liability to some of the big companies that we know of today that might be infringing on our data. Let's talk more on Straight Talk Live about what's really going on and what needs to change in terms of our data privacy and getting some sovereignty back. So thank you all straight talkers out there. Keep straight talking with those in your lives um, and um, be well. Have a great rest of your week. Over and out. Thank you guys. All the best.